Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Shadow Sex Cybersecurity Podcast. I am Nima Mihanyar, and I only possess one half of the access token that is required to access this episode. The other half is actually held in escrow by my partner in crime, Jorge Lamarca. Password accepted. Access granted. You will now be accessing this episode in T minus 20 seconds. Enjoy and remember. Not every geek with a Commodore 64 can hack into NASA. episode. The music you were just listening to is from Dualcore and you can find them at twitter.com forward slash Dualcore music. So I want to start by obviously welcoming all of our listeners for another episode. We hope you're all doing really well and before we kick it off I'm going to of course give our standard disclaimer that the views and opinions that Jorge and I share here are our own and do not represent those of our employers current or previous or any groups or organizations that we are obviously associated with. So with that being said we're going to jump into this week's show where we have a number of interesting stories for you guys, including a story about a recent supply chain attack that has the potential to be up there with the Solarigate attack that we've recently seen. We also have Facebook in the news, but this time Facebook is actually doing something really good. Then we have uh, the EFF and ACLU who are actually working to try and actually fight against warrantless searches for international travelers. And we're also going to delve into the world of WebAssembly and look at the security aspects around it. And there's some very interesting information in a recent paper that was actually released. And then we're going to finish off with an update on the Apple versus EU antitrust investigation, where we actually have an update on that case. And then, of course, we're going to dive into one of our favorite sections, the bite-sized chunks at the end. So the first story that we're going to jump into is going to come from bleepingcomputer.com and it's actually titled HashiCorp is the latest victim of CodeCov supply chain attack. Now, this story is actually part of a much bigger story in regards to the CodeCov supply chain attack that we obviously have to speak about before we're going to jump into the HashiCorp uh, disclosure. So this all began with a supply chain attack that occurred to the company CodeCov, which is a supplier of code management and audit solutions. So it's billed as sort of an online software testing platform that can be used to be integrated into your GitHub projects in order to generate what they actually call code coverage reports and through that they can also provide statistics. Now the attack on them is actually being compared to what happened at SolarWinds. The attack itself was actually first discovered on the 1st of April, which saw a malicious actor be able to gain unauthorized access to their bash uploader script and be able to actually modify it. Now the bash uploader script is actually used for sending reports to CodeCov and apparently the malicious actors replaced CodeCov's IP address with their own in the bash uploader script source code and by doing that they were able to actually pave the way to silently collect CodeCov's customers credentials which included their tokens and their API keys. Now, the malicious actors were able to actually modify the uploader script after they found a way to extract the actual credentials for modifying it by taking advantage of an error that existed in CodeCov's Docker image creation process. 
Now, Kolkov said that they actually have detected alterations to the bash uploader script going all the way back as far as the 31st of January, which allowed whoever was behind the attack to export information that was stored in their user's continuous integration environment. Now, when I'm referring to continuous integration, that actually refers to the practice of merging all developers' working copies into a shared mainline repository several times a day. For, for this one, this was kind of tricky, right? Because they, they did compromise a key that is used to sign releases by HashiCorp and so on. Uh, but I, I didn't see any accounts of, of like heavy weaponization of this for any you know campaigns against particular industry players so it's definitely a, a very unfortunate sequence of events but I, I didn't see any kind of follow-up and of course the the key is revoked so every client that is worth their salt and of course you know continuous integration pipeline that is well maintained and so on will not accept any of this exactly and the attack on CodeCov has also drawn the attention of the u.s authorities and is actually now the subject of a live investigation by the famous San Francisco office of the FBI. Now the attack itself was first noticed when a customer actually noticed a discrepancy between the hash of the bash uploader script, which was hosted on CodeCov's domain and the correct hash that was actually listed on the company's GitHub server. And they actually alerted CodeCov to the actual discrepancy, which actually resulted in them engaging their incident management processes. And according to federal investigators, the CodeCov attackers also actually deployed automation as a means to collect customer credentials in order to be able to tap into hundreds of client networks with a special preference for customers who also provide technology services to other companies. So as you can see, the attackers are obviously working to build a very intricate web of compromises, which will of course make correlation and detection much more difficult. And this is obviously a major attack that will have fallout to many other organizations. And one of them in this case was HashiCorp. What a terrible optic as well, right? Of all companies doing all things, a company focusing on quote quality. <laughs> Can we just take a second to appreciate the how, how unfortunate, how bad of an optic this is? I'm so sorry that happened. Exactly, it's true. I mean, it's, it's up there with Celebrite's issue last week as well. What a fun story that was, yeah. That was, I love it. <laughs> but HashiCorp uh, identified this anomalous behavior on their network and they automatically revoked the actual keys that they suspected was being compromised. But as you mentioned as well, Jorge, their investigation has not revealed evidence of unauthorized usage of the exposed GPG key. But to be as secure as possible, they have rotated it in order to maintain a trusted signing mechanism, which of course is the correct response to this type of event. Because of course, you never want your private keys exposed along with any other private parts of yourself, obviously. Then we're gonna jump into a next story, which is gonna come from securemac.com. And it's the story that's going to make you think that you entered the twilight zone because it's actually gonna speak good of Facebook, but specifically Facebook's security team. And this one is actually titled, Facebook finds new iOS spyware that they call Fenekit. Now, this story itself is about Facebook security researchers who have discovered a new iOS spyware threat, which they're calling Fenekit, that they believe was developed by an APT group called Arid Viper. This group has been linked to the Palestinian militant organization Hamas. They say that Fenekit is like a spyware suite for iOS and they found it hidden in a trojanized chat app called Magic Smile. 
Now, as you obviously would imagine from an iOS targeting malware, some of the features of this malware include the ability to access photos from the camera, view the user's contacts, access text messages and WhatsApp media data, record audio on the iPhone's microphone and direct users to malicious phishing sites. The entry vector was also interesting as it abused iOS configuration profiles for its initial compromise. Now, configuration profiles are what are used in enterprise environments to set up employees' devices with custom settings that the organization wants to incorporate. The APT group here actually used social engineering tactics to trick their targets into visiting websites that hosted Fenneket, and victims who went to this site were shown a prompt to install an iOS configuration profile, and if they did accept it, then it installed the signed version of the Magic Smile iOS app. Now, in some more praise for Facebook, they have already taken action to disrupt the activities of this campaign by taking down the associated social media accounts. They also blocked access to the domains that were being used to spread the spyware, and they have also tried to alert anyone they believed was affected by the surveillance campaign. I'm actually surprised this isn't more common because so many companies and big, powerful companies provide support for Macs as an afterthought, right? So they, they provide kind of half-hearted, tool-based, no strategy, no operating model support to Macs. So I'm actually surprised this isn't more of an issue, or probably it is, and it just isn't amplified enough. Very true. I mean, everyone always has the general notion that Macs are somewhat more safer because malicious actors don't go after them so much. But of course, as with all platforms, a good security hygiene is always recommended regardless of what platform you're actually using. And this is obviously just a reminder from this story for all of our listeners that although iOS malware is not as common as Android attacks, uh, you should still obviously practice good security hygiene by being vigilant and make sure you always keep your devices up to date with security updates because that actually would have prevented this specific attack from causing too much harm since in the actual kill chain of this malware, it used the well-known Osiris jailbreak to allowed the malicious app to break out of iOS's restrictive sandbox protections to gain the wider access it wanted to be able to access the phone's functionality. So just make sure that you obviously keep your devices up to date and you can obviously reduce your attack service significantly. Or just stop supporting Macs if there's no clear business reasons to allow them. Just, just a crazy thought. If you don't have the staff and the skills or the budget to support one platform properly, don't support two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That makes complete sense, definitely. But Macs are actually very, very popular as well with a lot of business users. Oh, definitely. There are some people, I know people who have never had a non-Mac corporate device. Like uh, I've actually had the opposite kind of run. Uh, all I'm saying is if you are in the IT department for a company XYZ, if you can't afford to actually properly manage the build and the life cycle for a family of devices that don't have a real business reason to exist, then why have them? Completely logical. Definitely. Now then, moving on to our next story. This one actually comes from the source. By that, I mean the actual source of the article, which is EFF.org. And it's titled... EFF and ACLU asked Supreme Court to review case against warrantless searches of international travelers' phones and laptops. So the American Liberties groups, the EFF and ACLU, have been petitioning and challenging the idea that American border officers should have the right to search any traveler's mobile or laptop device without any warrant or demonstrate suspicion, which of course, logically, by itself on face value, is problematic. 
Now, everyone knows the current wisdom that people say when they're traveling to the US or even China for that matter, and that is to never take your real device and carry a burner phone or laptop with you and keep it encrypted. But of course, we don't want that to be the norm that we impose on people everywhere. Now, the EFF and ACLU did have a victory in this area in the past when they brought a lawsuit, which was Merchant v. Mayorkas, that's M-A-Y-O-R-K-A-S, in September of 2017, on behalf of several travelers whose devices were searched without warrants at the U.S. border. And in November 2019, a federal district court in Boston ruled that border agencies' policies violated the Fourth Amendment and required border officers to have reasonable suspicion of digital contraband before they can search a traveler's device. However, in February of this year, a three-judge panel at the First Circuit reversed this decision, which is why the EFF and ACLU are now moving it to the Supreme Court to hear this case. All of this fighting and arguing obviously really stems from the fact that while the Supreme Court has ruled before that the police can't search people's phones inside the country without a warrant because they contain troves of personal information, they haven't yet decided on a case about phone searches at the border. Now, in the past, the Supreme Court has recognized that searches at the border are qualitatively different from those occurring in the interior of the United States because persons entering the country have less robust expectations of privacy given the federal government's broad power to safeguard the nation by examining persons seeking to enter its territory. But they have never made a definitive ruling on the practice, which is why this is being seen as such a big case. And every year, a growing number of international travelers are being subject to warrantless and suspicionless searches of their personal electronic devices at the US border. And, and it is believed that this will continue so. For example, they found that between October 2008 and June 2010, uh, around six and a half thousand searches was conducted and then in 2015 that went up in one year to 8,005 and then in 2016 that, went, that jumped to 19,000 by 2017 that was at 30,000 and by 2018 they had conducted 33,000 searches. And when it comes to the border man, I think public opinion because in, in the end the EFF in this case it's kind of straddling the line of public opinion at a time where they couldn't be better placed to make these points, right? Because we're coming from uh, an escalating crazy status quo where the police is clearly perceived to have overstepped in many areas, right? It's not perceived favorably by the public. And then on the, on the other side, you also have a general framework and a large amount of the population in the US where they actually buy these arguments of the people are sovereign, Right? And the government are kind of delineated by the Bill of Rights and legitimate interest in the defense of XYZ. Right? So in the end, arbitrarily invading people's privacy is not cool. Right? <laughs> it's a, it, that, that's the general point. And I think that message it would, would be so much harder to land in, in a place like Europe. Like basically every country in Western Europe. I think we, we are much further behind in this kind of natural course of reasoning where you actually realize that there needs to be strong safeguards justification and a good paper trail for any invasions of personal privacy however all of the ex extremist narratives specifically progressive thinking narratives have, have actually created a state of affairs where maybe a generation worth of people are ever more comfortable considering you know the powers that be authorities and so on as superiors in some way, right? So getting their information stolen, getting somebody's hand in their purse and so on, isn't as offensive as it used to be. But to me, it never, it never ceased to be crazy. So I'm very happy they chose such good timing for this message. It couldn't come at a better time, I, I, in terms of impact, right? 
Exactly, I agree. And of course, because of the fact that they've seen such dramatic increases over the recent years. But they did note that, of course, all of these increases happened around President Donald Trump's push for a tighter border security alongside travel bans and other restrictions that they put in place. But they do believe that this increased trend will probably continue because obviously the border officials have uh, sort of got a, a taste of it. <laughs> so they want to obviously try to put a stop to that as fast as possible, which is also a good thing. So that's why when these right groups are trying to push for at least a definitive judgment on this practice, so people traveling and going there at least have a better understanding and knowledge of what their rights are if they actually should get stopped over there. Because, of course, it should be noted that this doesn't just concern you and I in regards to our personal devices, but also our companies who we work for should also be concerned with this because it, of course, extends to them with some notable cases that they had in the past being ones like the one with Sid Bikanbar, who actually was a NASA scientist. He was actually detained and pressured to unlock a secure government-issued phone before being allowed to enter the country. Can you please tell the ladies and gentlemen why it is that you've never registered a fingerprint on a phone? Oh, I have. Have I not uh, disclosed that? Oh, you have? App Apple Pay, baby. Apple Pay was the breaking point for no me. No way. They got you to do it for uh, Yeah, they did. Oh, wow. Things do change. And that, that carrot being dangled in front of me, I just had to jump on it. <laughs> just as I'm making my iPhone a, a banking device with an ice cream, you're, you're registering your fingerprints. Oh, my God. Exactly. This is the future. <laughs> <laughs> But that's one of the... The future of 21. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but that obviously is another reason why they want to obviously get a definitive judgment in this area. Because of course, uh, the concern is that you can refuse access to your phone if you want to when you're entering the country, but border agents can make your life very difficult because of course they could detain you and courts are actually divided on how long they can keep you there and how long is too long. That's the next frontier. That's how they work around that because in, in any... In a, so I, I was born in a developing country, but I've never actually lived as an adult in a developing country. But in, in all the countries I've lived, they actually acknowledge your freedom to reject or refuse X, Y, Z. But then the way they get you is the consequences of doing so. Like, for example, just recently, I was confronted with the decision of, do you want to share a whole lot of documentation and then potentially expose yourself to more questions and probes and lots of pain? Or do you, do you just want to press this button and get our partner to get your transaction history in your account for last year. And then you have a real, you, you have a real kind of, you know, why split in your reasoning where do I spend two days talking to a monkey, sending across screenshots, you know, dealing with them not being able to open the zipped file, oh, the file doesn't work, change extension, blah, blah, blah. Or do you just press the button and have it go away? <laughs> you know, so it's like, yeah, you can refuse to for them to access your phone, but then you're a person of interest, and then you have to maybe drop your pants and bend over. I don't know, dude. You know, like this has to be addressed. If it's addressed, it has to be addressed in a holistic way. It can't just be, oh, you now you have this right, which is essentially like being crucified. You know what I mean? Like, come on. I think you just described the the perfect uh, analogy between uh, security versus. Uh... What's the, what's the word? Convenience. But I never agreed with that, though. I never agreed with that. To me, it's never been security versus convenience. For me, it's always been security versus ease of implementation. Because in the end, if you have, you know, safeguards implemented in a strong fashion in any kind of defense model, you can always do some more work ahead of time to make your life easier down the line. So, for example, let's say, oh, I got LastPass. That's a very simplistic example. Oh, I got LastPass, right? What if you didn't actually go through the trouble of setting up LastPass properly and getting selecting your trusted devices and getting probably something physical like a YubiKey, you know, that you have handy, as opposed to, oh, so now I get to actually look up in my phone the password and copy it over, or now because I don't have my phone with the password manager, I'm locked out of my life. You know what I mean? It's, it's always taking the time 
to set up the safeguard in a way that is actually pragmatic and proportional to what it's defending. So that's the, that's the compromise. It's not about security versus, I never thought it was security versus convenience. I always thought security versus convenience was kind of a simplistic way to view it. Of course, but that's what majority of people love is the simplistic viewpoint. No, definitely. But, but in this case, for example, you could say, if you plan on refusing to show your phone to a potential TSA agent or whatever it is, the police, etc., maybe you can fill out a form for a background check in your home country at the embassy. As an example, maybe you can do it online. So that, that, that would be like a solution. Like you can actually, you know, go through a vetting process that is reasonable beforehand to avoid having to be in that situation. As an example, this, I'm not saying that's practical. But the thing is though as well, with this issue of the actual searches, there's no way for you to actually really avoid it if they actually isolate you and pick you. So if they actually select you and they say, you have to obviously show us your device. And if you don't, then they can obviously detain you there uh, or as long as the courts deem it to be too long, but they could obviously also take your phone and they could obviously try to unlock it on site or or even try to send it off off-site to have experts try to unlock it if they really want to actually get access to it. And then you have signal and you have one of those, you know, one of those files. <laughs> exactly. I love that. <laughs> and also obviously So, so to, to, just just try to challenge that a bit more. To, to, let me just push the argument for a second, right? So you see certain airports in the world fixing the same problem that some others have but in, with dramatically different results. Like for example, what comes to mind is the example of Singapore's airport. So Singapore, obviously major metropolis, lots of traffic. It's also a, a travel hub for many destinations. Lot, lots of flights and airplanes. Airplanes, yeah, airplanes, why not? Lots of flights and airlines actually stop at Singapore and then hop somewhere else. So major security challenge there. So everybody that I've met who comes from Singapore or deals with Singapore airport has never complained to me about the impracticality of the checks and so on and so forth. And of course, anybody who's gone to the US a few times can tell you stories of, oh, this random police officer approached me near the, you know, the customs checkpoint and asked me the same question five times just in case I tripped up or looked dodgy. You know what I mean? So I would say maybe the, the folks in Singapore are doing some of their homework beforehand, right? As you apply, for, for example, for travel, etc., etc., to then not have to worry as much when you're over there. I'm only speculating, but I'm pretty sure there's ways and ways to do this. And just ease of implementation versus convenience, that's the thing. So they nobody actually wants to go through the work of actually reforming this and then putting their balls on the table. Okay, I think this is a better approach, even though it loosens some of the after the fact checks, if that makes sense. Of course, and I agree, there's definitely places which are doing it much better. But I think also part of the concern from, from the liberties groups is obviously that uh, the border officials may be doing this sort of targeting people as well. So it's not sort of a defined process or something that obviously you can sort of prepare for in advance, which is obviously why they want to try to actually get this sort of properly defined. Because of course, if, if they have no suspicion and they can't prove a reason why they're actually searching you, they shouldn't obviously be searching you at all. And if you are a citizen of the US and they do detain you over there, then at least as a legal resident, you know that eventually they have to let you back in the country as well. So you can obviously weather it out. But if you are not a citizen and you're someone who's actually traveling there, then the border agents can actually refuse you entry into the US and send you back to your country of origin directly. So that's obviously- First class. <laughs> You'd hope so. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> all, 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 all I'll tell you though, before we move on, all, all I'm telling you about this is I really hope some of these nut, nut jobs like Dave Smith and whatever don't get behind this story too hard from a libertarian perspective because then these people kind of dilute the credibility of the whole angle which has lots of merit. So these people who think that, you know, anybody with no qualifications could have like a counter-strike, you know, assault rifle for no real reason, those people should keep away from this conversation. So exactly. Actually, it retains some legitimacy, you know? <laughs> 
That's what I'm hoping, yeah? The libertarians can stay the fuck away. Just, just, just leave the argument alone. Exactly. There's so many liberty-based arguments that you can make. Come on, come on. Just, just have <laughs> It's fine. This, one, this one's actually sensible, yeah? Exactly. I agree as well. But the, the, the story did actually highlight another interesting case as well from the lawsuit. And that was actually the case from Diana May who is actually a former Air Force captain. So someone obviously you'd think has some credibility in the US. And she was actually detained in a small interrogation room at Miami's airport after returning from Norway. So obviously not a, a country which would be high on the threat list, but border agents had asked her to unlock her laptop and phone. They searched her computer and then they took her phone to another room for two hours, presumably to search it as well without her being present and she said that as she sat in the interrogation room she felt humiliated and violated she said i worried that border agents would read my email messages and texts look at my banking information and look through my photos i feared they would download all my personal information and contact lists now it's obviously hard not to sympathize with her on this as anyone who would be in that position would have the same feeling of violation especially if they take an item like such as your phone to another room in order to search it in more detail i mean if i mean if you're obviously someone who is into some raunchy stuff and likes to take some sexy photos and whatever then as long as you're not hurting anyone or breaking any laws then that's good you know you do you over there but if someone then takes your phone away without really your consent and then searches it in another room and you obviously have a lot of this very personal content on there, then of course you would feel a certain level of despair and a feeling of having your actual person violated in that regard. And regrettably, there really isn't nothing to say that these agents would not use these files for their own personal use or pleasure, because although we would like to think that all people act professionally on the job, we have seen countless examples, obviously, on the contrary of this. People are people. The government is people. The police is people. You know what a good solution could be to this? You can travel with your laptop set to Vim, right? And that's it. So you pin your screen to Vim, and then in order to, to search your computer, they have to escape them. Yeah, but then they will just make you unlock it. That's it. Or they will just no, basically no, no, refuse you. Can you. Say, no, it, no, no, it is something that, you know, I, I made for you specifically. So it says, please, <laughs> here's a, here's you, a gift you, for you. On, you're, you're a qualified, <laughs> you're a qualified, you know, law enforcement professional. Of course not. They're border officers. They have no idea how to escape them. <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, this, this story, Clearly, very interesting. It clearly is that, definitely that story. Terrible. Uh, you're always going to have these stories, though. Like in the, in the end, both sides of the issue, both the libertarians pushing on the kind of publisher side, and then the the lady story. That's kind of all of that is kind of propaganda for the. But but the general principle is sound and sensible and should be the default. I mean, it's the general principle that, of course, we should be focusing on. And obviously, as you said, it is sound and logical. And it's gonna, this is going to definitely be a very interesting story to see, because even though the ACLU is obviously fighting and the case is US centric, obviously the vast majority of people would like to or they have traveled to the united states so obviously a case like this would pretty much be applicable to a large swath of the general population so i do think that this is going to be a very interesting thing to also keep an eye on because if you're going to the united states you want to be able to obviously take your personal devices with you and not really be too concerned with taking a burner phone i mean you you do that sort of stuff when you go to China. That this is the type of things you'd obviously expect from a repressive regime. So not something that from a country which obviously tries to enshrine more liberty-faring values. So this is going to be a definitely an interesting case for us to keep an eye on as well. And hopefully a comprehensive decision will come out of it and people will have a much better idea and understanding of where they stand the next time they actually travel over there. But with that being said, we're now going to go and jump in to the fascinating world 
of WebAssembly security and the different types of attacks that may be possible. Because in case you obviously had a notion that WebAssembly is the fix all and be all of all programming risks, then I'm afraid this white paper about the security issues might put a, a little dampener on your mood. Wouldn't you say so, Jorge? I don't think I don't think anything could put a damp uh, a damper on the mood of people enjoying WebAssembly. Can I just say the stuff that is done on WebAssembly? Yeah, like for example, the, so some time ago I, I was trying to get into game reverse engineering, right? And I was thinking, hey, I really enjoyed those Monkey Island games when I was a child. I, I'm wondering what what are those games written on, right? The LucasArts story games. So that's like Green Fandango and Monkey Island and whatever. And then I found out that the people at LucasArts actually got tired of writing game engines or maybe run out of budget or whatever. And they wrote a reprogrammable engine that could be scripted by anybody. So you can create story-based games, you just upload the assets, you script the game, and then you have a game. The so assets or the assets? Was me. The assets too. So the assets are an asset. Some people value it at the top of the asset pyramid, but let's not deviate attention <laughs> yeah? The point is, and this is a nice segue into the whole story, right? So there's this compiler infrastructure called LLVM, and LLVM allows you know to reuse parts, but also reuse a framework for compiling sources to targets, right? A very popular target of LLVM-based compilers is WebAssembly. So you can actually compile C, C++, a number of high-level languages that are also highly performant compared to other web-native languages in WebAssembly, and since 2017, more or less, every major browser supports it, which means you can create a complex application that a browser can run natively. And the paper, and this is, this also spawned, you know, a pile of work that we have to do gradually. And whenever we have a slow news week, it's nice to throw in something we were meaning to do. So for example, the whole review of main attack vectors for Azure was great. This is another oldie but goodie, not that old actually, it's like, it's like maybe nine months old, but it, it, it was a fascinating conversation who actually picked up in, in Hacker News recently and it just it jumped at me and I, I thought, yeah, you know what, I'm going to kind of fast track this one and take a look. And the paper is called Everything Old is New, Binary Security of WebAssembly. And it talks about not the ways you can abuse WebAssembly to escape WebAssembly and compromise the host. It doesn't touch in that, even though lots of people speculating about the paper seem to go in that direction and also seem to disparage the vectors highlighted by the researchers on how you could abuse WebAssembly. What the researchers were focusing on is how can you actually abuse the WebAssembly bytecode itself to abuse the assets that the application does have access to. So in the end, the whole premise is you can actually compile C++ or C into WebAssembly and the default parameters of classic compilers like G++ or Clang and so on, they actually put by default a number of protections that since at this point decades have prevented now obsolete attacks on binaries. Like for example, some return-oriented programming techniques, stack-based overflows, and so on. So it used to be in the 80s and 90s. Let's just take away the, the, the IoT conversation for a second. Let's just talk about binaries running on Linux and Windows. Yeah. So it used to be that you could actually do things like overwrite the buffer and then jump to an address and so on. So uh, all of that is now part of basic exploitation training and is really good to, to keep in mind. But how usable is that? In actual modern applications, not that much. The reason they titled the paper Everything Old is New is because WebAssembly seems to have a lot of protections by the nature of the virtual machine that runs it, but is missing some that have been staples of binary security for a very long time. As an example, things like so control rotation controls, such as stack canaries, for example. So you cannot overwrite the stack arbitrarily because then you will overwrite a canary or a value in the stack. It is checked by the code itself and it will crash. Or for example, you cannot overwrite overflow certain pages without writing into a protected page, which will crash the program. Or for example, the, the memory offsets in the virtual memory space of the program cannot be easily guessed on 64-bit machines because 
the base address for mapping the binary memory is randomized, so that's ASLR, and so on and so forth. So those have been assumed. However, the researchers took a look at the design documentation for WebAssembly and actually did succeed in putting together two end-to-end -end attacks that could be very concerning in the more complex WebAssembly applications. So they start by quoting the design documents, that's a, it's in GitHub, anybody can see it, right? In which it is actually claimed that common mitigations such as data execution prevention or stack smashing protection are not needed by WebAssembly programs. And then what the researchers are saying is WebAssembly essentially runs on a stack-based virtual machines with continuous memory. Things like setting permissions on chunks of memory or memory pages, right, to make them writable, executable, or readable, or any combination thereof, are not there. So every offsetting memory is actually writable. Moreover, because there is no stack canaries, a number of buffer overflows who were, that were a thing of the past in native binaries are now definitely an option. They actually managed, and I highly encourage the, the listeners to actually read the paper, but they go on to say, in most native platforms, stack overflows will cause the program to crash as the stack grows into a special guard page, as we were saying. In WebAssembly, no such protections exist for the unmanaged stack. So they explain really well that WebAssembly treats memory in two distinct ways. So it keeps a managed stack, which can, it can only be edited by using an API that the host would expose. So for example, re reading return addresses would not be possible. So it has manked safe return addresses. But then there's the unmanaged stack. Because the WebAssembly design doesn't allow for higher level objects, it only has very low level types, such as 62-bit integer and so on, every complex type has to actually be rolled by the implementation. They also go on to say that the memory allocators are implemented with varying degrees of hardening. So a compiler, typical configurations for compilers until 2020 used to actually make available to developers the possibility to have allocators that are lighter weight, that result in lighter weight binaries, which is always desirable, specifically for WebAssembly. It's got to be downloaded and run in the browser, right? So very desirable. That actually allow for other families of attacks, like abuses on the unlinking process of, of memory segments and so on. So I highly recommend the listeners read the paper. It is structured in three parts. The first talks about what write primitives were found to be possible. Then the second is, what can we overwrite to abuse the program? And then the third is, how can we actually make this into something useful? So they give two main examples which jumped at me. First is exploiting CV 2018-14-550 in LeapPNG, in which native applications is mitigated by the use of normal modern mitigations, as, as we said, but the attacker can actually replace the IMG tag with an arbitrary piece of content, like a script, for example, which will then get passed to document write, so the DOM function that actually writes out into the container, which can be the tag that we were talking about. And that resulted in both persistent and non-persistent cross-scripting attacks that they demonstrated to be possible. On the other hand, heap metadata corruption, which allows for remote code execution in the host environment, that's server-side for Node.js in their example, abusing the aforementioned lacked of safe unlinking feature in certain memory light allocators. In the example, a pointer to a function is overwritten to instead point to exec, which is universally, it's actually a macro that's available in many languages. JavaScript is one of them, but there's a few, and which will pass the WebAssembly type check as you can actually jump to a function, but all functions map to the same basic type. So WebAssembly technically disallows jumping to a type that would not correspond to the function, but then all functions typically link to the same type. So the article, I, I, I don't want to go into too much detail in the podcast because the format is not right, but I highly recommend you guys read it. And the, the, the conversation in Hacker News is also very interesting. It happened a while ago, but it's very interesting. And everybody pointed to the fact that, all right, so the WebAssembly application is as powerful as whatever you give it. So it cannot escape, using these techniques, it cannot escape the actual sandbox. However, 
what the researchers were responding. So researchers actually jumped on Hacker News and were answering questions by people critiquing the paper. And what they're saying is we anticipate that because of the power of WebAssembly, WebAssembly applications will become very large and sprawling. And despite a lot of the security measures being deliberately and by design given or allowed to happen at the implementation layer, because these WebAssembly programs will become so big and so powerful, these exploits will become ever bigger and more powerful. <laughs> and they also pointed the readers in the direction of several mitigations that don't necessarily require any changes to the way WebAssembly works. So they were, they were talking specifically about stack canaries, which is, can be done at implementation, fixing or maybe rolling some compliance into the allocators that are, that are allowed or by default set in these compilers, etc. So there's a number of security measures that can be taken by the code itself. And then they also pointed the reader in the direction of several proposed changes to the way WebAssembly is actually implemented at the browser to allow for safer execution. So this all relate to allowing memory chunks to be isolated logically from one another. And also there was, there was mention of emulating write protection via only allowing certain API calls against certain places in, in, the, in linear memory or linear memories, as they call it in the paper. So there's also a very nice chart in which they compare binary security to WebAssembly with the things available and not available. So again, very nice read. I highly recommend that our listeners take a look, even though this one is from a while ago. And we'll put a link in the show notes. Definitely. I think it's going to be a very interesting one, and I'll definitely have a, a view on that. And I also have WebAssembly actually on my to-read list to find out much more about it, because, of course, the W3C Web Consortium also recently certified it and put it up there in the same category as HTML and CSS, as well as part of the core web technologies. So we will definitely be seeing a lot more about WebAssembly moving forward. So this will probably be a staple technology for the web moving forward. So of course, everyone is of course encouraged to learn as much as they can about it because it will only grow in prominence. And as Jorge also mentioned, we will get more and more sprawling web applications written in it. And they will of course also be filled with a lot of issues so let's keep an eye on that space then we're going to jump into now our next story which is coming from cnbc.com and it's titled the eu says apple's app store breaks competition rules after spotify's complaint so here we all remember that Apple is currently going through an antitrust investigation in the EU, which we obviously have covered in previous episodes. Well, the update we have now is that Apple has landed in the hot water that they were expecting to land in anyway, so they're not really all that surprised. So on Friday, the European Commission said that Apple has abused its dominant position in the distribution of music streaming apps through its App Store and that our preliminary finding is that Apple exercises considerable market power in the distribution of music streaming apps to owners of Apple devices. And Apple responded to this in their own statement of objections by saying that the EU's case was the opposite of fair competition and going on to say even that Spotify has become the largest music subscription service in the world and we're proud of the role that we played in that. And that once again, they want all the benefits of the App Store, but don't think they should have to pay anything for that. So, of course, they're giving themselves a nice pat on the back for Spotify's accomplishments there. You know what, you know, mystifies me about this whole thing? That everybody's right and everybody's wrong. Like, it's like, for example, with the EFF case, it's nice. It's kind of comforting. Like, it's like, it's absolutely clear who is in the right. Right? And it's just a matter of time until the craziness kind of recedes, hopefully. I'm an optimist, right? With this one, I don't see 
I would leave. So of course, a lot of this documentation will be disclosed and so on. So we'll know more details as we as we go. But I don't see that the European Commission has an actual cohesive view on what the state of affairs should be. So of course, they take issue with the fact that there's a cut. The case, as you were saying just now, that was largely made by Epic, Spotify, and so on, have very specific complaints. But I do think Apple is correct in that they have they've actually manufactured, grown, and kept up and safeguarded a big walled garden that people love. So that has to come at a price. It cannot be free for all Android. It cannot be in the same space in terms of monetization. That's just silly. At the same time, when you look at other walled gardens, such as, for example, online video and so on, those platforms actually allow for creators and players within their platform to monetize their work in different ways. They don't get too in the way of people monetizing their work. So you can actually, you can actually monetize via the partnership programs that they expose, right? Or you can do your own thing. So let's say you have a channel in YouTube or in Instagram that doesn't necessarily play the algorithm too well. You can definitely set up Patreon, you can definitely get sponsors and so within the terms and conditions, right? I don't understand why Apple can't allow content creators to actually create their own revenue generation systems, besides the obvious fact that, of course, this makes everything much messier. It makes Apple's bottom line, you know, not as juicy and so on. But I, I don't understand why besides all of the cuts, so you're essentially a partner of the App Store, why they're shutting down all of the adjacent revenue streams that these content creators could legitimately access. Exactly, and I, I actually agree with you on the, on the part of being conflicted a little bit on which side is the right or wrong, because as you mentioned correctly, I mean, Apple is obviously the protectorate of this walled garden and they have done a good job to create a safe ecosystem for app developers and app users alike. But at the same time, as you mentioned, on the little aspects such as, for example, just allowing these apps to promote other revenue generating streams outside of the Apple ecosystem seems that they could be a little bit flexible on that because of course just allowing companies like Spotify just to be able to advertise the fact that users can potentially go onto their own website to be able to actually subscribe to it it doesn't really seem like it would harm too much Apple security or their fundamental processes that they have in place but as you mentioned they more or less just want to have a very strict control over everything that happens there and that in this case is coming back to sort of bite them in their behind because they're really sort of being viewed more and more as a unflexible sort of gatekeeper over such an important aspect of the mobile ecosystem such as the app store i, I do think that the the percentages are too high, especially for the present day. Because one of the things they claim in their actual on-record responses is, oh, we haven't changed that since the beginning of time. So it's been the same since 2006 or whatever it is. Yeah, it's 2021. <laughs> like the, the volume scale, extension, capability, everything is different. And it has to sort of, it has to be, you, you kind of, you know, already said it, it has to be way more flexible. Exactly. Even though I think that they did actually mention that recently in the last couple of years, they did change or modify their policy slightly to say that if your app is generating less than a million dollars a year, then instead of the 30% cut, they'll only take 15%. But that's still, to some people, is still too much. That is arbitrary and crazy. I, 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 just, I just wish those seeking to change the situation had a better and more specific vision of what exactly should be different and how so and how you can map that back to civil i'm not gonna say no that's too much to consumer rights in other comparable spaces right like maybe windows 10 or maybe windows 10 oh dude that's such a bad comparison i'm so sorry you know I, I know what right? you so mean. So other more narrow spaces, other more narrow spaces, like maybe maybe Instagram, right, or maybe YouTube, or maybe something like this, right? So, or maybe, maybe Steam, maybe Steam is a good example as well. 
obviously the scope is much more narrow and so on. There's definitely, this has definitely in combination been done. Like as a whole, the issue has been resolved and you can take lessons learned and scar tissue from many other players looking to monetize in largely the same way. Exactly, I think so. And I think that at this point as well, we can probably make a prediction on this podcast right now that Apple is probably going to lose the case eventually and they're going to be hit with a fine that they will obviously use some legal wranglings to bring the final judgment amount down to as low as they can get it, obviously, because that's what we've seen with other judgments in the past. Unless, of course, they're dealing with the Chinese government who recently actually imposed a 2.8 billion dollar fine on Alibaba for behaving like a monopoly and if there was any other company in the west then they would have obviously gone through the legal processes to bring that amount down but in the case of Alibaba they pretty much conceded straight away and agreed to pay the full amount without objection and vowed to change their practices so that was just a really big surprise to me a company actually agreeing to pay 2.8 billion dollars in a fine the thing is let's talk about apple for a second yeah you're saying 272 but you know what let's say 100 billion dollars do you think that's a, a big amount of money? Yes. Like if they find Apple a hundred billion dollars, okay, that's what they make in five months. And they've been at this for 15 years. Their revenue, their yearly revenue is over 250 billion a year. So how much can you, how much can you find them within reason and precedent to make them change their ways? Nothing, you can't do, can't be done. All you can do is impact their bottom line somewhat in the future but this is, again, this is something tech giants are already anticipating. They're, they're already even, I, I'm assuming, planning for it. Like, how long can we get away with this clearly crazy <laughs> uh, statute, you know, term and condition? How long can I, oh, so I, I can get away with this for 12 years. Lovely. So they, they will mean somewhat in 12 years down the line where I already made whatever amount, a few trillion, right? So it's like, yeah, whatever. And also, did you see a tweet by this lady, the lady who's heading up the, the commission who's actually pursuing her? No, what did she say? I don't know, it actually ends with, I wish I had it in front of me. It actually ends with customers losing out. So she basically did like a, like a logical waterfall of sentences, like uh, I have, or we have found that Apple has done blah, 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 customers losing out. Like, no shit, Sherlock, are you serious? Like I'm telling, I'm telling you, there, there, there's a saying in, in with Spanish, you know, conservatives. Like you have to look at politicians. Like they're snakes inside of enclosure, right? Because they are just silly, inferior versions of other people. No, <laughs> like, are you serious? Like it took you to 2021 to realize that this is a public hazard, the, the state of affairs with the App Store and so on. Like, whatever. It it, it took for them to actually try to define tracking. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's shall we? now let's jump to our favorite portion, our bite-sized chunk section. I have the best bite-sized chunk. I have the best bite-sized chunk since emoji domains. Are you ready? Okay, so the university, I want to read it correctly because this, this is kind of delicate, yeah? So the University of Minnesota got banned from contributing to Linux kernel. They, they decided, so this department, by the way, sanctioned by the review board of the university, right? Which, by the way, of course, they might sign off on something at face value and not fully comprehend the implications. We're all human. That's okay. I'm not taking a dig at that, right? But it's just so funny. This, these people seeked out to write a paper called On the Feasibility of Stealthily Introducing Vulnerabilities in Open Source Software Via Hypocrite Commits. So they explained. That they've been able to introduce vulnerabilities into the Linux kernel by submitting patches that appear to fix a real bug but also introduce a serious problem. The group called these submissions hypocrite commits. So the person leading it didn't respond to a request for comment to the story. So this comes, of course, from diverge.com, even though not really. It's fine. They explicitly called this experiment, as the researchers have since emphasized, was to improve the security of the Linux kernel by demonstrating to developers how a malicious actor can slip through their net. One could argue 
that the process was similar in principle to that of white hat hacking. Play around with software, find bugs, and let developers know. So that's what they say. The maintainer community went limit. And this actually calls back to the story we had about you know poisoning PIP packages. <laughs> like you go out, right? And you experiment on a platform without letting them know. And then you abuse, you, you first of all, compromise the security of people. In the case of PIP, it wasn't the case. But in this case, you definitely did uh, or potentially did. And you also wasted a bunch of maintainer time. And these maintainers are typically highly skilled volunteers that are just working on the latest kernel, right? So there was a massive, massive backlash. And they called for retracting the paper. They called for an apology. They called for disclosure of all of the logic behind the hypocrite commit so that the review would be easier and they called for you know reform within the institution and so on right so the, the worst part about the story the story is hilarious obviously but the worst part about the story is that it actually kind of worked so they actually got a whole bunch of merges or commits actually enacted because some of the review processes and procedures and so on need work. Like the, the way the Linux kernel project deals with new people or new committers or newcomers to the scene and so on, is actually under review thanks to this, right? So you have this kind of <laughs> dual story where somebody did clearly something ridiculous that should never happen, but he had an actual outcome that made people go, oh. Yeah, that, was a, that was a good story as well. But I think actually in that one as well, it was noted that the mergers never made it to the main branch at least. So that was actually a, a good thing over there. No, yeah, so I, I, th I think the way they went about it was misguided. I think the reaction from developers come from a place of being overstretched, undercompensated, underappreciated. So I think this is, this was just a release of some of the real, real pressures these people are under. And I, I think any maintainer of any thankless, you know, project, I, I, you know, the metaphor that comes to mind is this huge Jenga tower. So it's, it's a big Jenga tower, right? But it's, instead of being like a like a building shaped tower. It's just like a like a like a house of cards built of Jenga pieces, yeah. And you have enormous, sprawling, beautiful developments at the top. Except one side of it is sustained by a single piece of Jenga, and that single piece of Jenga is something like you know X Y Z module in the Linux kernel. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you have these people like you. You've mentioned plenty open SSH and so on, right? So you you have these people who are very few people with very kind of precious prime slots of time that they devote to reviewing submissions and so on. And it can really rub them the wrong way. And I don't blame them. I actually fully understand where they're coming from. I'm, much, I'm also glad this came to light, to be honest. Exactly. This is quite beneficial for everybody. And I think the time spent reviewing the commits, but also reviewing the process is going to be, you know, beneficial long-term. So yeah, great story. Exactly, I agree totally, and also as as Jorge mentioned, I mean, if if the developers are listening and they are under a lot of pressure, then don't worry, guys. Okay, just reach out to us. Jorge and I will spot you some money to go to a strip bar, and you can relieve your pressure there. Okay, you don't need to take it out on the Linux kernel, guys. Okay, the poor guys are already stressed enough as it is. But then, going to another bite-sized chunk that we have, coming from Verizon, who, as you remember, paid a nice bit of change for the once upon a time behemoth of the internet Yahoo, is now reportedly ready to give up on it along with AOL, and reports indicate that they're looking to sell them off and they're willing to take a loss for them as well. And you will obviously remember that they actually got a little discount at the time of the acquisition of Yahoo since at that time Yahoo had revealed one of the biggest hacks to have occurred by that point on their systems which was something that Yahoo neglected to mention to Verizon during the negotiations. Then as well, something that we don't normally talk about here is actually about cybersecurity investment rounds. But we have to make a special mention here, I think, for an industry favorite, which is Hack the Box, who recently announced a successful Series A investment round where they raised $10.6 million. 
Hack the Box is actually a cybersecurity training startup that specializes in using ethical hacking to train cybersecurity techniques and they offer virtual vulnerable labs to allow people to test and learn the art of hacking. So a big congratulations is going out to them and we do hope to see them continue and grow as well because they're really doing great things over there. They're also, they're also serving as a home for the type of cybersecurity professional who has a lot of love for computing in the low-level side of things and doesn't quite seem to find their home in the security intelligence slash manufacturer space. So there's a few examples of that, of, of loud voices in industry that found a home in places like HackerOne and, you know, Hack the Box and so on. So really great new species of player in industry in the last 10 years so very nice i'm also very happy for them even though 10.5 million doesn't seem that high considering the expenses they must be having but yeah more power to exactly them. every penny helps in this case let's hope that they continue to expand and be more successful as well because their actual platform over the last year alone actually has been upgraded considerably and it actually looks really great right now as well so definitely recommend our listeners do check that out as well. But with that being said, that is going to conclude another week and another episode of the Shadow Sex Cybersecurity Podcast. I want to thank you all for continuing to listen. And as always, I encourage you guys to reach out to us and share your feedback and your ideas with us on Twitter or on the emails, as Jorge and I always love to hear from you guys. But with that being said, from Jorge and I at ShadowSec, we wish you a good day and a good week. Bye-bye! Pack all the things! Yeah, well, good luck, man.